Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already and hit the bell to be notified when new videos are posted. Um, You might notice that I am kind of in a different environment today. I'm in the same place I usually record, um, just in the back of the room. Um, But my wife and I have been working on setting up kind of a a studio uh, setup for me and for Sean. Uh, So when Sean comes over and we do uh, in-person sessions, we have kind of a a more professional looking setup. So we got some pictures, we got good old Brother Spurgeon up here and some stuff on the wall, got some books on the table. We'll be able to do a more wider shot uh, when Sean joins us, but hopefully that'll kind of help make the uh, quality of the podcast more professional um, look different. So, but with that, uh, we're going to dive right into our discussion today. Sean, I will turn it over to you to intro, uh, Clement. Yeah. Um, before we begin, I just want to actually, um, give, uh, praise to God for the recent, um, overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, just give him thanks that that has, uh, that has been done. Um, there's still a lot of work for this nation to do, but, um, just thanks be to God that uh, at least that wicked uh, ruling has been overturned. Amen. But to um, get into it, uh, we're continuing in our journey of um, going through First Clement. We're only going to be dealing with uh, chapters 21 through 32 today. Um, a little bit smaller of a chunk this time, but hopefully that'll allow us to uh, go a little bit more in depth and talk about things a little bit more. Um And with that, do you want to get started reading there, Dan? Yep. So I will read, um, I guess, 21 through 25. And if you want to finish it, Sean. Sounds good. All right. So first Clement, starting in chapter 21. For he saith in certain places, the spirit of the Lord is a lamp searching the closets of the belly. Let us see now. uh, Let us see how he near. I'm sorry. Let us see how near he is and how he and how that nothing escapeth him of our thoughts or devices which we make. It is right, therefore, that we should not be uh, deserters from his will. Let us rather give offense to foolish and senseless men who exalt themselves and boast in the arrogance of their words than to God. Let us fear the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood was given for us. Let us reverence our rulers. Let us honor our elders. Let us instruct our young men in the lesson of the fear of God. Let us guide our women toward that which is good. Let them show forth their lovely disposition of purity. Let them prove their sincere affection of gentleness. Let them make manifest the moderation of their tongue through their silence. Let them show their love, not in factitious preferences, but without partiality towards all them that fear God and holiness. Let our children be partakers of the instruction which is in Christ. Let them learn how lowliness of mind prevaileth with God, what power chaste love hath with God. Now the fear of him is good and great, and saveth all them that walk therein in a pure mind with holiness. For he is the searcher out of the intents and desires, whose breath is in us, and when he listeth, he shall take it away. Now all these things the faith, uh, the faith which is in Christ confirmeth, for he himself through the Holy Spirit thus invite us. Come, my children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear 
of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth to see good days? Make thy tongue to cease from evil and thy lips that they speak no guile. Turn aside from evil and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are turned to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is upon them that do evil to destroy their memorial from the earth. The righteous cried out and the Lord heard them and delivered them from all his troubles. Many are the troubles of the righteous, and the Lord shall deliver him from them all. And again, many are the stripes of the sinner, but them that set their hope on the Lord, mercy shall compass about. The Father, who is pitiful in all things and ready to do good, hath compassion on them that fear him, and kindly and lovingly bestoweth his favors on them that draw nigh unto him with a single mind. Therefore, let us not be double-minded, Neither let our soul indulge in, indulge in idle rumors respecting his exceeding and glorious gifts. Let this scripture be far from us, where he hath or where he saith, "Wretched are the double-minded, which doubt in their soul and say, These things we did hear in the days of our fathers also, and behold, we have grown old, and none of these things had befallen us. Ye fools, compare yourselves unto a tree, take a vine." First it sheddeth its leaves, then a shoot cometh, then a leaf, then a flower, and after these a sour berry, then a full ripe grape. Ye see that in a little time the fruit of the tree attaineth unto mellowness. Of a truth quickly and suddenly shall his will be accomplished. The scripture also bearing witness to it, saying, He shall come quickly and shall not tarry, and the Lord shall come suddenly unto his temple, even the Holy One whom ye expect. Let us understand, dearly beloved, how the Master continually showeth unto us as the resurrection that he shall be hereafter, whereof he made the Lord Jesus Christ the firstfruit, whom he raised from the dead. Let us behold, dearly beloved, the resurrection which happeneth at its proper season. Day and night show unto us the resurrection. The night falleth asleep, the day ariseth, the day departeth, the night cometh on. Let us mark the fruits, how and in what manner the sowing taketh place. The sower goeth forth and casteth into the earth each of the seeds, and these falling into the earth dry and bear decay. Then out of their decay the mightiness of the master's providence riseth them up, and from being one they increase manifold and bear fruit. Let us consider the marvelous sign which is seen in the regions of the east, that is, in the parts of Arabia. There is a bird which is named the phoenix, this being the only one of its kind liveth for 500 years and when it hath now reached the time of its dissolution that it should die, it maketh for itself a coffin of frankincense and frankincense and myrrh and the other spices into the which it is in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time it entereth and so it dieth. But as the flesh rotteth, a certain worm is engendered, which is nurtured from the moisture of the dead creature and putteth forth wings. Then, when it is grown lusty, it taketh off, uh, taketh up upon that coffin, where are the bones of its parent, and carrying them, journeyeth from the country of Arabia, even unto Egypt, to the place called the City of the Sun. And in the daytime, in the sight of all, flying to the altar of the sun, it layeth them thereupon, and this done, it setteth forth to return. So the priests examine the registers of the times, and they find that it hath come from when the 500th year is completed. Do we then think it to be a great and marvelous thing if the creator of the universe shall bring from the 
bring about the resurrection of them that have served him with holiness in the assurance of good faith, seeing that he showeth to us even by a bird the magnificence of his promise. For he saith in a certain place, and thou shalt raise me up, and I will praise thee. And And I went to rest and slept. I was awakened, for thou art with me. And again, Job saith, and thou shalt raise this my flesh, which hath endured all these things. With this hope, therefore, let our souls be bound unto him that is faithful in his promises and that is righteous in his judgments. He that commanded not to lie, much more shall he himself not lie. For nothing is impossible with God save to lie. Therefore, let our faith in him be kindled within us. And let us understand that all things are nigh unto him. By a word of his majesty, he compacted the universe, and by a word, he can destroy it. Who shall say unto him, what hast thou done? Or who shall resist the might of his strength? When he listeth, and and as he listeth, he will do all things. And nothing shall pass away of those things that he hath decreed. All things are in his sight, and nothing escapeth his counsel. Seeing that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament proclaimeth his handiwork. Day uttereth word unto day, and uh, night proclaimeth knowledge unto night. And there are neither words nor speeches whose voice are not heard. Since therefore all things are seen and heard, let us fear him and forsake the abominable lusts of evil works, that we may be shielded by his mercy from the coming judgments. For where can any of us escape from his strong hand? And what world will receive any of them that desert from his service for the holy writings the holy writing saith in a certain place where shall i go and where shall i be hidden from thy face if i ascend into heaven thou art there if i depart into the farthest parts of the earth there is thy right hand if i if i make my bed in the depths there is thy spirit whither then shall one depart or where shall one flee from him that embraceth the universe Let us therefore approach him in holiness of soul, lifting up pure and undefiled hands unto him with love towards our gentle and compassionate father who made us an elect portion unto himself. For thus it is written, when the most high divided the nations, when he dispersed the sons of Adam, he fixed the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. His uh, people, Jacob, became the portion of the Lord and Israel the measurement of his inheritance. And in another place he saith, Behold, the Lord taketh for himself a nation out of the midst of nations, as a man taketh the firstfruits of his threshing floor, and the Holy of Holies shall come forth from that nation. Seeing then that we are the special portion of a holy God, let us do all things that pertain unto holiness, forsaking evil things, abominable and impure embraces, drunkenness and tumults and hateful lusts, abominable adultery, hateful pride. For God, he saith, resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the lowly. Let us therefore cleave unto those to whom grace is given from God. Let us clothe ourselves in concord, being lowly-minded and temperate, holding ourselves aloof from all backbiting and evil speaking, being justified by works and not by words. For he saith, he that saith much shall hear also again. Doth Doth the ready talker think to be righteous? Blessed is the offspring of a woman that liveth but a short time. Be thou not be not thou abundant in words. Let our praise be with God and not of ourselves, for God hateth them that praise themselves. Let the testimony to our well-doing be given by others, as it was given unto our fathers who were righteous. 
Boldness and arrogance and daring are for them that are accursed of God, but forbearance and humility and gentleness are with them that are blessed of God. Let us therefore cleave unto his blessing, and let us see what are the ways of blessing. Let us study the records of the things that have happened from the beginning. Wherefore was our father Adam blessed, Abraham blessed? Was it not because he wrought righteousness and truth through faith? Isaac, with confidence, as knowing the future, was led a willing sacrifice. Jacob, with humility, departed from his land because of his brother and went unto Laban and served, and the twelve tribes of Israel were given unto him. If any man will consider them one by one in sincerity, he shall understand the magnificence, magnificence of the gifts that are given by him. For, for of Jacob are all the priests and Levites who minister unto the altar of God. Of him is the Lord Jesus as concerning the flesh. Of him are kings and rulers and governors in the line of Judah. Yea, and the rest of his tribes are held in no small honor, seeing that God promised, saying, Thy seed shall be as the stars of heaven. They all, therefore, were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or through their own works or righteous doing, which they wrought, but through his will. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the almighty God justified all men that have ever been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, lots of good stuff this time. Um, yeah. So we see Clement continuing the theme of the, early, the first 20 chapters of calling the Corinthian church to be humble, calling them to put aside their sectarianism and focus on being unified in Jesus Christ. Um, and we also see, again, the authority of the scriptures being used to judge and to exhort the people of God here at Corinth. Um, it seems that he's continuously—there There almost seems to be an allusion to the Proverbs here as well. Um, so scripture seems to continuously be being used as an authoritative uh, structure by which to provide instruction for godliness to the people of God. He's not appealing—we talked about this last week, I think—he's not appealing to— um, to some kind of external authority, although we're not saying that um, authorities outside of Scripture, if they are consistent with Scripture and subordinate to Scripture, are bad, but he's not appealing to some kind of tradition that would supersede the Scriptures or that would be authoritative in an incorrect way, or appealing to himself as Pope, as he is said to be uh, the fourth Pope. But we see... Um, you know, this is consistent with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul is calling them to be humble here, to not be um, puffed up in their own knowledge and themselves, and, and calling them to a humility. Um, and I think this is in light of their divisions that they 
we're continuously having. The gospel is what unites. The gospel is what saves. And Paul wants to remind them of that here. So that they were to be humble in light of this gospel um, that they were to have. So there's no room for boasting. Um, Clement is saying, you guys need to stop being sectarian in your views here. You need to stop having these foolish divisions among you. And you need to be united um, and repent of these things that you are uh, teaching. So there's very, again, there's similar themes that we see with this parallel between Paul and Clement. Um, There's something interesting here, too. Oh, I guess before we move on, Sean, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, About the the scripture I did, um, this time I took a little bit of a a different route than I had the first time. Um, Mm -hmm. We noted, obviously, last time that scripture is quoted as authoritative throughout um, the letter. Um, But this time I sort of wanted to track what was going on with the scriptures to see what what specifically was he citing and um, like if there was anything interesting that could be gleaned from that. Sure, go right ahead. Um, So... I uh, I looked up the uh, references for all the either citations or allusions that I saw. Um, and we've got a very good um, smattering of uh, books of the Bible that are represented. We have uh, Genesis, Proverbs, Malachi, Psalms, uh, Job, Daniel. And interestingly enough, Second Peter. I think um, mm. there's an allusion here um, in... Uh, or. Uh, uh, I guess I'll say a paraphrase of Second Peter and First Clement twenty three three, and I'll just uh, remind what that uh, remind our listeners what that said. Uh, Let the Scripture be far from us, where he saith, "Wretched are the double minded, which doubt in their souls and say, these things we did here in the days of our fathers also, and behold, we have grown old, and none of these things have befallen us." Um, so that it's not quite a one for one citation, but he does say that it's it's scripture. He says that uh, it's the scripture that says this. Um, mm. I just I just lost my place, but uh, yeah, he says the script. It's the scripture that says this. It says this, and the only thing that um, comes close to this in the scripture is uh, from Second Peter three verses three through four, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. And saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So Mm. it's the same idea there. So I think uh, Clement is actually paraphrasing uh, Second Peter when he does this um, when he does this uh, citation of scripture or or where he um, references the scripture. He's paraphrasing it, Um, which is interesting because in our day, a lot of. academic scholarship or a lot of uh whatever the academy uh wants to say that second peter is not written by peter is not original um to peter but here we have a uh a citation of it and um i actually looked and this is not the only uh potential reference to second peter in the letter it looked like he did it um at least three times so if uh, Clement is familiar with Second Peter and quoting it as scripture, that is a very early attestation to um, to uh, the um, the authenticity of Second Peter. Not that we need early attestation to know that it's scripture, um, the scripture is self-authenticating, but it is an early witness to that being the fact. So I thought that was interesting and wanted to bring it up. No, that's very interesting. Um, 
And there's, a, I would say, a pretty good possibility that Clement may have even known Peter personally. He certainly yeah. lived during his lifetime. Yeah. Um, so he may have conversed with Peter at some point or maybe heard through a close witness or someone who knew Peter at the time um, and is starting to receive these things very early on. So, yeah, if if he did cert if if he is referencing Peter, which it, I think is pretty clear that he is, um, that would be an early attestation historically, extra biblically to mm -hmm. the uh, authentication of Scripture in terms of mm -hmm. uh, of Peter's writings. Yeah. And it's very early. Yeah. And that very early. And that's interesting because it is so early and already they're quoting into scripture. Um, so right. a little bit later in church history, it might be disputed by some, but here it seems to be very early um, recognized. And um, that's what we would expect. We would expect that the, uh, the uh, early church would be able to recognize scripture and know what it was as to um, Clement uh, meeting Peter. I, I think that Peter probably did end up in Rome at some point. I don't think he founded the church in Rome. I think the, uh, the biblical evidence supports that not being the case. Um, but we do have so many stories of him dying in Rome from the early church that I would seem to think that that probably is where he died. And if that's the case, he very well could have met uh, Clement and been familiar with his writings uh, through that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty neat to think about like you have so that would mean that the the church was accepting these things almost immediately as scripture. Mm -hmm. Like these are coming from the apostles. These writings are coming at least with Peter is coming as authoritative because he knew Christ, because he's speaking on behalf of God and they're they're seeing these things as the word of God is being received uh, in that way very quickly, very early on. It's not like I think modern scholarship likes to paint the development of the canon of scripture over hundreds of years and in a way that would seem to negate that there is really any early attestation to these New Testament books being scripture early on. And I think that's really what Michael Kruger is trying to address in his book, Canon Revisited, is, you know, there is very early attestation to the Gospels, to Paul's writings. Um that is, I think, contrary to modern scholarship that sees a much, probably a much later development. I think that's kind of what he's addressing. But we do see this very early attestation to these books. And Clement is just, he just keeps quoting, you know, the Old Testament, I think, is pretty clear. That was obviously taken as authoritative and a scripture. But when you start to see these other books being put on par with the Old Testament and being appeal to and say hey because of what it says here because of what it says here what it says here you need to do x y and z um it really starts to help us to see what they thought of these things in the early church and this is before many of the well-known church fathers came on the scene the apostolic fathers only makes up a very small group i think it's only four including clement um so i mean you have this small group that's starting to push these things out and, and other men as well that are um, teaching these things as authoritative, but it's really neat to see, especially since they're in the same generation as the apostles. All right. Um, another thing that is interesting that Clement brings out is um, the idea of, of justification. 
Right. Um, I think that this was one of the um, I think one of the coolest things about reading this book is seeing this very early attestation to the doctrine of justification by faith, not justification by works. Um, and Clement seems to address two different things as it relates to justification, which ironically and interestingly enough is a controversy among Roman Catholics and uh, Christians today. We, he talks about in chapter 30, verse 3, being justified um, by works. So he says in verse uh, verse 3 of chapter 30, he says, Let us therefore cleave unto those to whom grace is given from God. Let us clothe ourselves in, in concord, being lowly-minded and temperate, holding ourselves aloof from all backbiting and evil speaking, being justified by works and not by words. Okay, so he's clearly saying that you need to show yourselves to be approved by what you do, right? Be aloof from this backbiting and this division. Stop it. Be Prove yourself by your works, right? This is very similar to what we see in James chapter 2. And he's, he's essentially using the language that James uses, right? He's not coming up with any new terminology. He's basically quoting James, which... You know, if you want to go into the paraphrasing route, like with Peter, you might be able to argue that he got this from James and is seeing James as authoritative. But, you know, we see in James chapter two, starting in verse 14, it says, what does a prophet, my brother, and if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, do you not give them the things which are needed for the body? What does a prophet? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the theme is very clear here. He's talking about justification in terms of proving your faith, not being justified in terms of being saved. Now, Roman Catholics, the common Roman Catholic argument or counter argument against that is that James chapter two is talking about justification by works, not merely faith. And they'll go to different places. They'll say, um, you know, well, it says that we're justified by works, not by faith alone. James says that, therefore, that means that we are justified by works and somehow it completes our faith. Um, you know, I was reading some on, on Catholic Answers, which is a Catholic apologetic ministry. Um, and this is essentially one of the arguments that they use. Um, and they even go to Abraham's, um, Abraham's example where he offers up Isaac, right? His faith is said to be complete. Right. And they see this as as really Abraham wasn't justified by faith. He had faith in Genesis 15, but then in Genesis 22, he was um, completing his faith by what he did. He was essentially securing his salvation by his works. Um, and we would obviously reject that wholeheartedly. Um, but it's very clear that this idea of justification by works, as we'll read in chapter 32 of Clement, is clearly not understood in the way that Roman Catholics would understand James chapter 2 today. He would see it in light of a, an expression of faith, not as a, uh, a means of being saved. So if we look at chapter 32, verses 2 through 4 of 1 Clement, he, see, he says, for, uh, for of Jacob there are all the priests... Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, but he he's talking about, you know, presenting those works um, as being 
evidence of faith. Now, what is interesting here is that if um, if Clement is talking about justification by faith alone and not justification um, by works in the sense of being saved, and Clement is the first pope, and the pope is supposed to be infallible, yet he's yet the Roman Catholic Church today is saying that we are saved by works. What does that say about papal infallibility? Right? If the pope is supposed to be speaking infallibly on behalf of Christ, and he's clearly not teaching what they think uh, the Catholic Church should be teaching, then we have a problem. We have a pope now who's actually consistent with what the Reformation taught, counter to the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century, um, and contradicting um, other popes, which would prove Luther's point that popes have constantly uh, contradicted one another. And this was a problem that he brought up, I think, in his 95 Thesis. Um, so Luther is looking to church history to prove his point about justification. So I find that very uh, interesting. Um, anything you want to add to that, Sean? Oh, yeah. No, I've uh, got a lot, of, <laughs> a lot to say about this. Yes. Um, going back to First uh, Clement um, 30, uh, verse 3, I definitely agree with you, Dan, that um, uh, James 2 very well could be in the background of... Mm -hmm. uh, of uh what clement's writing here but even if it isn't the concept being presented is still the same you yeah. look at james 2 and james is clearly talking about um justification before men or justification in the sense of um vindicating yourself uh the word justification doesn't always necessarily have it doesn't always mean the exact same thing for example the scripture says uh, wisdom is justified by her children it doesn't mean that wisdom is now saved, declared legally righteous before God by her children. No, it's righteous or wisdom is vindicated by what she produces. She's shown to be wise because she's produced uh, good things that are of benefit. So when we look at uh, the word justification, we've got to figure out how it's being used. And in James 2, it very well seems to it very much seems to be used in the sense of vindicating oneself. James says, show me uh, your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's demonstrating whether or not you're true or not. And um, in this case, uh, the contrast isn't between works and faith. It's between works and words, um, being justified by works and not by words. Why is that? Because you can say whatever you want, um, but it's your works that are actually going to vindicate whether or not you are true or not, um, your, your words aren't going to help you. Um, and then the next, uh, the next verse here sort of illustrates that for he saith, um, he that saith much shall also hear, shall hear also again, does the ready talker think to be righteous? So he's, he's um, and I believe that's a quotation from, uh, Job, if I recall my notes correctly. Um, uh, the, the quotation is saying, like, you, you talk a lot. Do you think your talking makes you righteous? No, right. it doesn't. Um, you're not going to be to be shown to be um, true in that sense. Um, you need to demonstrate it by your works, not by your words. And um, if we were to take a different interpretation of this, we would then end up having to uh, say that Clement contradicts himself literally mm -hmm. in the space of a couple chapters. 
Um, (laughs) Like, you're justified by works. Oh, by the way, you're not justified by works, which is obviously (laughs) absurd. And it's the same problem that um, Rome falls into. Rome will go to um, James 2 and see, see, you're not justified by works. Or see, you are justified by works. And it's like, well, that then therefore contradicts Paul and you've created a problem in the scriptures, as opposed to the Protestant understanding of seeing this as um, not the same justification that's being spoken of. Um, so then when we, we do get to um, uh, first Clement uh, 32, um, it's just, it's so clearly laid out. It's honestly even a little clearer than Paul lays it out. Um, oftentimes you'll have uh, Roman Catholic apologists saying that, um, oh, when Paul refers to not being justified by works of the law, he's referring to the ceremonial law. That's all he has in mind. So we can be justified by other kinds of works. Well, it's very obvious from some context that he's not talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about the moral law. But uh, even his logic would apply beyond that to any kind of work. If you just read his argument, the argument stands for any kind of work. But here, Clement is so, um, so very specific. Uh, we are not justified uh, through ourselves or through our own wisdom or through or understanding or piety or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart. So that yeah. is that is any kind yeah. of work. And it's obviously much broader than the um, just the ceremonial law. So mm-hmm. Clement is just laying it out very clearly here, um, which I mean, he, he's he's um, at the church in Rome, I would hope he would have read the uh, the book of Romans. So he's very <laughs> familiar with the uh, the idea, the uh, the doctrine of justification by faith. So this is exactly what we would uh, expect. Um, but no, I really, uh, I really, um, I really like the way that Clement lays it out here. And as I told the, uh, the story um, last week, uh, when uh, my Roman Catholic acquaintance told me I needed to read first Clement, I did. I actually literally stopped after 32 and I didn't proceed anymore because I was just so flabbergasted. Here was the person, here is the, like this Roman Catholic told me to read this and I read it. It's just so completely contrary to their opinion or to their uh, position that I was just, I was just in utter shock. Um, now if, if uh, Roman Catholics want to take that Clement as a Pope, I'm, I'm fine with that as long as they listen to him. <laughs> um, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just listen to what he says here about justification, because it's very important you do. So what that um, implies, you know, barring yeah. anything else that was around the time of, of this book on justification, that would imply that justification by works was a later development and not something seen by the early church. If you're taking into account uh, the scriptures themselves and then Clement's testimony following almost immediately after in the generation of the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it seems to be this clear cut, you know, uh, tradition, I dare I use that word tradition handed down, um, by the scriptures, by the apostles and clearly taught here in Clement, it doesn't settle, you know, you can't, the Roman Catholic church can't have it both ways. It can't claim him to be a champion of the Roman Catholic church as the fourth Pope. And at the same time, having teaching doctrines that contradicted the Roman Catholic church, which would have been Pope Leo the 10th at the time in the 16th century with the spark of the reformation. Um, so it, it creates some, it creates a conundrum there for them. Um, and it's really, you know, you, you have to, to look at this with understanding what justification is. Like when I was looking at, um, Catholic answers and their response to Protestant 
you know, I think it was one particular Protestant argument with chapter two, and they go to Abraham. Um, they're talking about his faith being complete by his works. He wasn't, you know, justified completely or justified by faith alone in Genesis 15. He had to kind of complete the process later on with uh, the sacrificing of Isaac. Um, but it the past, the article never deals in any way with Romans 3, Romans 4, or, you know, Paul's, I, I guess in Romans 4, Paul's specific exposition of Genesis 15, 6, mm-hmm. where he says that he was justified apart from works. There was no room for boasting in Abraham. He only had faith in Romans 3 saying that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the works of the law, apart from our good works, um, and it's received through faith. So having a proper understanding of what justification is, and then going back to James is very important to understanding what came after Abraham's um, uh, accounting as righteous, his justification in in Genesis 15, 6. So there's this conundrum that they create, not only historically with their historical theology, but also internally with the scriptures that they claim uh, is, uh, that they claim to hold to. Yeah, and just read through, if anybody doesn't um, agree with our position, just read through James 2 and read through Romans 3 through 5 and ask yourself, are these talking about the same things? Because Romans 3 through 5 is talking about our standing before God. You read through James 2, and there's no discussion of that whatsoever. And he uses a completely different example of Abraham, which came after he believed, and and Paul discussed establishes as being rightly justified by god no condemnation done Mm -hmm. yep how is how is abraham's uh justification complete by his sacrifice of isaac it's to demonstrate to everyone that he was truly a believer right um now god knows that he was a believer all the way back in genesis 15 that's why he's um accounted as righteous there but in terms of us, we need to see. We can't see directly into the heart. But I read through the whole of Genesis, the uh, the narrative about Abraham, and I see that the final completing act, he was willing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And I can say, no, this is a man that actually did believe. Um, he is vindicated of any charge that he was an unbeliever. Because you do read the narratives, and um, Abraham isn't always the most righteous man. He does sin. No. He, um, he lies about his wife. Um, he doesn't. Uh, stand up and protect her he lets other men um essentially take her uh but um we are shown that he actually was a believer in god and therefore uh was accounted as righteous Um, that's the point of using that example not to say that um our right standing before god is now completed by our works exactly yep that would contradict what I think Paul in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And that's flowing from the argument he made all the way back in chapters 3 and 4, that we are saved, we are grounded in Christ, there's no condemnation, and this is the same faith that Abraham had in Genesis fifteen six. He was not condemned, he was justified before God. So there's no room for taking Genesis 22, I think is where the story of Isaac comes from and imposing that back into Genesis 15 and saying, well, you know, this had to do with this over here by completing what was not actually complete um, in Genesis 15, contrary to what Paul says in Romans three and four, he had no room to boast. He would have plenty of room to boast if this was the means by which his faith was completed. Hey, 
All I had to do was sacrifice Isaac, and I'm good. You know, I got in. I got myself over the hump. I got myself over that fence. You know, God did part of it. I completed it with my works. That is not what we find at all. Um, it's it's just very interesting. They put the Roman Catholics today put themselves in a historical theology conundrum, as we see here with Clement, and with a internal theological conundrum um, with Romans and James if uh, they take this view. So it, it's very interesting. This is why studying church history is so important. It helps you to see how to avoid the pitfalls of pagan churches. Yes, the Catholic Church is a pagan church. It's not a Christian church by any way, uh, any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it helps us to see, you know, what did the early church believe? It helps us to see what their hermeneutic was. How can we avoid the pitfalls that they've, uh, that you know, the modern uh, Roman Catholic Church has fallen into and and avoid these pitfalls using Scripture. Um, another interesting thing that we see here in chapter 32 of uh, Clement, he seems to have a very interesting typology, which seems to be very consistent with the Reformed typology. Um, so in, in chapter 32, he says this, For of Jacob are all the priests and Levites who minister unto the altar of God, of him is the Lord Jesus, as concerning the flesh. Of him are kings and rulers and governors in the line of Judah. Yea, and the rest of his tribe were held in no small honor, seeing that God promised, saying, Thy seed shall be as the stars of heaven. They all, therefore, were glorified and magnified, not unto themselves or their own works, or uh, the righteous doing which wrought, but through his will. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our, our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works, which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have ever been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there seems to be a, a typological understanding here, and, and, I, and I think this is from Genesis twenty two seventeen. God's covenant with Abraham, he says, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is in, on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. It seems that there is partitive exegesis being done here on the part of the author of Clement. Partitive exegesis meaning seeing Christ on the, exposing Christ, expositing Christ on the pages of Scripture. He seems to be using this partitive exegesis as it relates to the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 22, seeing this as pointing forward to Christ and what was to come, and ultimately the salvation of God's people being justified by faith, right? So this is a very Reformed understanding of covenant theology, both e even, you know, Baptists and Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians, I think, would agree at least at this point here, that there is this pointing forward from the old to the new, and there are some nuances in there, obviously, but there is this understanding of a typology, a type, and then an anti-type being fulfilled in Christ and wrought out in the new covenant with the salvation of God's people. So it's very interesting that even this early on, there is this understanding of the Old Testament pointing forward what was to come in Christ. There was no dispensational garbage of breaking up um, the plans of God. You know, there's one plan for Israel over here, and then there's 
just the church over here. No, it, it, it seems that the writer of Clement saw this as a cohesive whole, saw the promise to Abraham pointing forward to what was the, being fulfilled in Christ and, and fleshed out in the salvation of his people. So I thought that was a very interesting, uh, interesting thing that Clement brings out. Well, you also see um, he specifically says that um, this is the way by which um, God has justified all men um, since the beginning. Um, so for any hyper dispensationalist that would see salvation as being different under the, uh, the different dispensations, um, that obviously Clement is not in your camp. Um, when you said, uh, part of exegesis, did you mean typological exegesis? Cause I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of it deals with the divine and human nature of Jesus and, um, interpreting passages in light of that like oh this is referring to his humanity as opposing to his deity um unless i'm wrong about that so i understand part of exegesis to be talking about just it's expounding christ on the mm -hmm. pages of scripture mm -hmm. um if there's nuance to that um there might be that's how i understand it mm -hmm. i'm willing to be corrected if i'm way off but that's uh based on my own study that's how i understand part of exegesis Okay. All right. Well, we can look it I up. I think afterwards. it would include what you're talking about, though. Mm -hmm. Like under expounding upon the uh, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, that would definitely be part of exegesis. I think it just has to do with um, seeing Christ on the pages of Scripture, mm -hmm. um, especially in the Old Testament. Um, so, yeah. All right. Did you have anything uh, you wanted to say about any other sections? Because I had had at least one or two other things I wanted to say. Nope. Go right, right ahead. All right. Well, in that case, I think I wanted to go back to uh, Clement um, 27.5. Um, sorry. Let me check my notes again really quick. Um, yeah, it was 27.5. What am I looking for? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'll read uh, 27.5 and 27.6. Who shall say unto him, What hast thou done? Or who shall resist the might of his strength? When he listeth, he listeth. He will do all things, and nothing shall pass away of those things that he hath decreed. All things are in his sight, and nothing escapeth his counsel. Um, so at this point, I just want to say, sorry, open theist, Clement is not on your side. Neither is uh, the early church, because here <laughs> uh, we clearly see that what God decrees will come to pass. Um, yeah, at least from at least this is what Clement's saying. Um, there's no like early church understanding that, oh, we, we originally uh, Christians understood that God um, God didn't know the future. And this is a modern philosophical invention. No, we can see that um, uh, obviously we have the New Testament, which is sufficient. But even those immediately outside of the New Testament held to a very strong idea of God's sovereignty over the events in human history and that what he decreed would come to pass is not able their um, humanity isn't able to uh, prevent God from doing what he wills. Um, did you have any thoughts about that? No, I think that is very interesting. I, I don't know what the writer of Clement would have thought about uh, the concept of free will. I know there, there, mm -hmm. I think there was some discussion about free will pretty early on, but probably not as early as Clement. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we do see again, very early attestation to God's decree and that man cannot thwart it. Um, mm -hmm. And that is 
again, I think a, a very, I think what it does for the these type of things, like we see with justification, we see with God's decree, is it grounds the Reformation in history, that the Reformation and the Reformed were not coming up with something new. They were not making these things up on the fly. Really what they were doing was calling back ultimately to Scripture, but also to the early church traditions and church fathers and in, in councils and saying, look, this is what the early church taught. We're not making up anything new. The, the Catholic Church is where is what ultimately aired at the beginning of the Reformation, and that's where Martin Luther started to see this. You know, we need a change. We need to co have a course correction here. We're not being consistent with what we see in Scripture and with the early church itself. And we should go back to the sources that ad fontes, right? The Renaissance uh, motto, going back to the sources, going back to the sources, calling back to the, the historical realities. So it's encouraging to read things like in First Clement because it helps us to see that our these core aspects of what it means to be Reformed um, and Protestant and Christian in, in some places uh, is not grounded in, you know, something that the the or the reformers made up on the fly in the 16th, 17th centuries. It's grounded in scripture and it's grounded in history. Um, and that helps with the validity of, of the, uh, of the position. That's all I got. Hmm. All right. Um, then in uh, 29, um, one, we have uh, another reference to the elect. Um, Let us therefore approach him in holiness of soul, lifting up pure and undefiled hands unto him with love towards our gentle and compassionate father who made us an elect portion unto himself. Um, so once again, we have um, a reference to the elect and we have it said that God is the one who has made us elect unto himself. And it's interesting because I think what he um, primarily has in mind um, in regards to the election, uh, at least the election unto himself, the elect portion unto himself is um is actually being made into a, a holy nation, a holy people. Because you read the, the next two citations, um, this is from verse 2, for thus it is written, when the Most High divided the nations, when he dispersed the sons of Adam, he fixed the boundaries of the nations according to the number of angels of God. His people Jacob became the portion of the Lord, and Israel the measurement of his inheritance. Um, so this is a, an Old Testament reference um, uh, uh, to Deuteronomy. Um, and it's talking about there, the, uh, the choosing of the nation of Israel out of the nations that are around, which is interesting, um, from a, uh, um, from a, it, it's interesting in the sense that he would be using that, um, this as a proof text for Christians today, because that would identify Christians with is Israel, um, uh, which is, uh, again, against a sort of dispensational hermeneutic <laughs> that would see those as completely unrelated things. Um, it doesn't make sense that he would use this proof text in that way from that perspective, seeing as that's a reference to uh, ethnic Israel. And then the second reference, and in another place he saith, Behold, the Lord taketh for himself a nation out of the midst of the nations, as a man taketh the first fruits of his threshing floor, and the holy of holy shall come forth from that nation." Now, this is a little bit of an interesting one, because at the very least, it appears to be a composite citation. I think um, the citation was um, Numbers 18, uh, 27, and Second Chronicles 31, 14. But even then, it's not 
quite both of them together because um, there's a little bit more in there. So uh, this um, this uh, confused me for a little bit, but you do sort of see the same thing in the um, in the New Testament, the way it cites the Old. Oftentimes you will see um, two scriptures being cited in the same breath um, with, with the author not really distinguishing them. And on top of that, an interpretative layer being um, uh, put on. It's not the exact words of either citation, but it's the concept that's coming through. Um, it seems that in the uh, early church and, and the apostles were perfectly fine not giving you a word-for-word citation, but giving you the meaning of the citation in light of Christ, in light of uh, redemptive history, in light of the rest of the Bible. Um it's not necessarily the way we moderns think. We like to see our, our exact citation, um, but it's uh, what they did. And it appears that Clement is um, continuing in that line of thought or in that in that way of uh, exegeting the scriptures and uh, citing the scriptures. But both these deal with um, being a people taken out of nations to become a, uh, uh, a nation themselves. So when Clement is talking about his elect portion, He's talking about his elect nation that out of all the nations, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be um, taken to form his holy nation, his holy kingdom. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, there seems to be some, you know, defeater arguments against dispensationalism, which yeah. didn't come yeah. about until the 19th century, by the way. Exactly. About 1800 years after this book exactly. was written. Um, yeah. So. That was not a position grounded in church history at all, it seems, and uh, contrary to those who were close to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Not, not to mention scripture. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Clement can be wrong. As we read through, um, he thinks that there's this uh, animal called the phoenix, um, which we know <laughs> doesn't exist, that uh, lives for 500 years, dies, and then is resurrected after 500 years. Um, <laughs> so... We're obviously not saying, oh, well, Clement said it, therefore it's true. Um, Clement can be wrong. (laughs) Clement can be even wrong about theological concepts. We have no issue with that. Um, But it is an early witness. But the the primary witness to why we are not dispensationalists is the scriptures themselves. Yeah. And with that, I think I'm I'm good. (laughs) Cool. Cool. All right. Well, Clement is a very interesting book. And we're. You know, it's one of those books, one of those things you're kind of like, okay, let's let's dive into this big work. And but then once you start unpacking it, you're like, wow, this is consistent with this, and we're saying this is consistent with what we believe. Um, so it's it's been a lot of fun going through it. Um, I think we how many chapters do we have left, Sean? I want it's like sixty something in total. Um, so we're about halfway done. Okay. All right. So probably in a, so next week our episode is gonna be Tuesday night. Uh, Lord willing, we will have Dr. Matthew Barrett from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary on to discuss his book, Simply Trinity, um, and talk about the doctrine of God in light of his book. Um, So we won't have an episode next Saturday, but the following Saturday, um, hopefully we will be able to continue our study in First Clement. Maybe finish it, maybe not, we'll see. Um, But this was meant to be a series anyway, so if it draws it all longer, that is okay. Um, But with that, Everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today. And Lord willing, we'll see you guys Tuesday evening.